Good morning. Let's go ahead and be seated. The Lord be with you. Before I uh, get started on this text this morning that I felt particularly pulled on, snagged in my heart this week from the lectionary, I'm starting with the Genesis text with the story of Jacob and how he called this place Bethel, the place where God was, and he was surprised by that. Uh, Let me just say thank you, first of all, for being uh, the kind of house that we are here in Sanctuary uh, as your bishop. I'm, I'm I'm so delighted that we have our uh, uh, Mark Arstead that's stepping in as a interim rector that's coming in the first part of August. He'll, their first Sunday, he and his family will be here August 6th. Please give them the, uh, the kind of welcome and openness that Sanctuary is famous for. And, uh, uh, and pray with us because all transitions, no matter what they are, changes in jobs, whatever you're doing in life, It has both beauty and challenge (laughs) jammed in it. And uh, if we're a praying people, what it helps us to be is not so brittle and we don't crack so easy, right? Um, I've been wearing glasses since I've been four years old and my wife got this really nice pair of glasses and I've always bent the glasses, you know, the way that they're supposed to be and she was complaining about the back of her ear. And so I, in my professional way... (laughs) was going to try to adjust it, and it, just, it was too brittle. It just broke. And you're supposed to dip it in hot, I guess. And, you know, anyway, the point is, is prayer dips it in hot. And if we're a praying people, whatever we adjust to won't be brittle if we sort of surround that with hearts of expectation and hope to God um, and give some elasticity to those, those moving places. Um, a special thanks to you that feel called to this community, and there's many of you that do, Thank you for your faith, and thank you for your uh, support, and thank you for your presence here. Sanctuary is a treasure. Uh, There are thousands of people who peek in at what we're doing via our web presence, via our uh, sermon podcast, that kind of thing. There's such a good that's being done here, and we believe that there are good deeds ahead, good things ahead. And so we're asking, Lord, help us to cooperate with what you are doing in this house. Can you say amen to that? Amen. All right, so this passage, this is Jacob in Genesis 28. It says that he left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and, um, which is just a little south of Bixby, <laughs> where they made beer for the first time, Beersheba. There. But anyway, uh, he came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set, and taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head. To lay down in that place, stones for pillows seems a little odd, but you know, what are you going to do? And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it was reaching to heaven. Watch, angels of God were ascending, descending on it, all this activity. And then we find God speaking to Jacob some specific things about making sure that what his dream was for Jacob would come to pass. Beautiful thing. And then we pick up the text in verse 16. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, watch it. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Surely the Lord is in this space, in this place where I am at, and I didn't know it. The question that pierced my own soul this week when I was looking at this is, what if that's true for all of us? What if God is really where you are? 
right in the context of all the circumstances that you're facing. The good stuff, the not so good stuff. What if he's right there with you in the place where you are and we just don't know it? Um, How many of you would be honest to me and say that a lot of the time you're not really all that spiritually aware (laughs) that God is moving in your life or that you know, there's spiritual activity like angels going up and down a ladder by where you are in your context is going around you. I mean, I think all of us would have to admit that we're not always aware of that. Uh, Probably we're seldom aware of it. Uh, It's almost as if we're sleeping in terms of spiritual awareness. And it appears if you read the scriptures and you read the life of the saints that have gone before us, it appears that God is totally okay with that. That on some level, even though he continually works in our lives and is present in our lives, a lot of us just aren't aware of it and it doesn't make him stop working. He's okay with us being ignorant and idiots. (laughs) Uh, There's a text in 45. In fact, it appears in a way that he set it up for that to happen. In this text is 45.15, Isaiah. Truly, it's one of my favorite texts. Truly, you are a God who what? Hides himself. Um, oh, God and Savior of Israel. I mean, it, it's, such, it's so counterintuitive. It seems like if he's the God and the Savior of Israel, that it would be, look out, because here he comes. He's going to become a power, right? But it says, God, you hide yourself. You're the Savior of Israel. You hide. You're the God of us. And you hide. You love to hide yourself. Um, We see this kind of hiding in other stories in the Bible. The resurrection story that we read just a few weeks ago um, about Jesus uh, appearing to a couple of the disciples on Easter afternoon. He had risen in that early morning, and then that afternoon, a couple of the disciples are walking along, and Jesus comes, and we pick up the narrative uh, in Luke 24, 15, and as they talked, these disciples were talking, a couple of them, and discussing what had happened that weekend with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. And watch the text. But they were kept from recognizing him. They were kept from recognizing him. He was a God who hides himself. About 25, 30 years ago, I was reading this text just you know, just uh, just from my heart, you know, or just reading the Bible, I wasn't studying it. And, um, and as I read that part where it said they were kept from recognizing him, I really felt like the Holy Spirit kind of abruptly put this thought in my mind. I do that to you all the time, <laughs> which I thought my first response was, get behind me, Satan. Because I was of a a kind of mindset that God wanted to be on parade all the time, that he wanted to do miracles everywhere. He wanted to be in, you know, make people just feel him on such a deep level that they were kind of on the floor speaking in tongues and drooling, right? Um, and, and, it, and, and so I, I thought to myself, if I, was, if I just had enough faith, if I just fasted enough, if I just really trusted God enough, there would be constant power. We'd see the book of Acts in constant display all the time. I thought that's what God wanted. It never dawned on me that maybe God doesn't want that open display all the time. Maybe God actually loves to tuck away and that his seeming op- in a, for our inability to perceive him and his se- seeming imp- opaqueness is part of a plan 
of his. And it's part of the way that he wants to engage with us. I mean, so you ask, well, why would God want to hide? Why doesn't he want to be an open manifestation all the time? I think that we see through a glass darkly and he dwells in that world of opacity because it has to do with the nature of faith. There's something about how God designed faith that means that it's not so clear, this business about knowing God, trusting God, opening up to God. Faith really isn't knowing like we know other things. It's a kind of of inner knowing. It's a kind of conviction, maybe more like the knowing we experience when we say we love a person. Say, I feel this love for a person. I feel like they love me. There's a a knowing about it, but it's a little less knowing than knowing this piece of wood is here, right? It's something a little more inner, something a little less grabbable. And, And faith is not even, I don't think, quite like that. I think it's a little less than that. It's described in Scripture as hope that has substance to it. And the best way you can describe hope is like it's a kind of a thing you can't grab. Faith gives it substance to grab in some way. But hope is like, a good example of hope is like dreaming. And if you've ever gone to sleep and had this dream and it's maybe a really good dream or you're wondering where the dream is going and, 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 and maybe you turned or something and, and, and you, try to, you kind of awake and they try to go back to sleep and you want to catch the dream and go for the rest of where it goes. How many of you have ever done that, right? You know what I'm talking about? And it's gone. Dream's gone. Hope is like that. It's something that's fleeting. Unless it's given substance, then it's called faith. But it's always really a little sketchy. God designed faith to be just that way. It's a kind of knowing, but not a real strong knowing. We see that God wants this from us. He wants our relationship with him to be based on this very kind of sketchy thing called faith, which has a kind of knowing, but a kind of doubt. It has a kind of believing and a kind of of, of um, uh, doubt that's sort of built into it. It's like a coin that has heads and tails, heads being uh, a, a sense of belief and confidence, and the other side is the, the tails would be uh, insecurity and doubt. Somehow faith has both of that in that. That's why when you hear a story like the guy that Jesus encounters uh, when his son is so sick and, and the guy said, can you help me? And Jesus said, I can if you believe. And his response was, Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. I think that's classic. I think that's exactly right. When people are truly of faith, what they say, they're things like, thank God, I know this is going to happen, I think. You know, this is going to happen. I mean, it might. There's a kind of sense. And people that say, no, it's going to happen, and they're absolutely confident. I I don't think that's really faith. I think that's more Pollyannish denial. Right, pretend. It's, it's not really faith, it's fake. So you're not living by faith, you're living by fake. You're pretending that everything is perfect and you're pretending that that's what faith is. That's not what faith is. Faith is that little bit of sketchiness in it and that it's almost like, um, you know, have you ever been on a chair where you're, sorry. You know, we think it's like this. It's just solid. I have faith. But it's really more like this. It's more like, It's more like, I was just in faith. Hold on. I'm in faith! <laughs> right? I'm in faith! <laughs> Ouch. 
So the scripture says, and God set this up, Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. In other words, there's something about living in this space of a kind of certain uncertainty. Trust, where you're not really in control, that makes God happy. It's what he wants from us. God isn't looking for performance from you. He's not looking for you to be perfect. He's not looking for you to always bring your best. I mean, all that's welcome. But what he's really looking for is your trust, is your willingness to say, God, I'm just trusting you. Because when you trust in God and when you lean into that uncertainty and you look to him and and you'll see in a moment exactly what that looks like, but when you do that, there's something in you that begins to participate in his nature. So that it's not so much that you're trying to be good, but you're trusting in the good one and all of a sudden his goodness is communicated to you and you start living gooder. (laughs) And it's not because you did it, it's because you encountered the one who is good. And you participate. So it's not so much your performance for God, it's God's performance in you. So Paul says, I trust in Christ. He said, but it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives through me. That kind of idea. So it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists. In other words, must believe that he is there. That somehow, even though you didn't know it before, you, you, you believe that he's right there where you are, like Jacob at that, at that place called Bethel. And that he rewards people who believe he's there enough that they actually seek him. See, the Hebrew writer is talking about faith being a thing that God is seeking from us. That, 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 that it's a thing that we need to have if we intend to please him. And that it appears to be a kind of testing thing. It's the test of faith that God's looking for in us. And, and, and the text actually says that this faith is necessary to please God and that it requires a couple of things. One is that we believe that he exists. And two, that we believe that enough that we actually seek him. That we believe that he exists where? With us. That he's actually with us. That he's actually in our context, with us in our space, with us in the things that we're going through right now. And that because we believe that we seek him within that context of where we are. I don't think we refuse to seek God because we're awful and rebellious people. I mean, I do think we're awful and rebellious people a lot, but I don't think that's not why we seek God. I think we don't seek God because we don't really believe he's with us. I mean, how many of you have ever misplaced an item and then searched for it for hours, right? Everywhere. When do you stop looking for it? When you find it or when do you stop looking for it? If you don't believe it's there, it's gone. You've lost it. You'll have the seek all up in your grill driving you until you've completely scoured the place over and over again. You say, I don't know. And the minute you think it's gone, it's not here, is the moment you stop seeking it. See, I think we don't seek God because we don't believe he's really with us. I mean, why would he be? We're not that important. We're kind of selfish, sinful. Look what's going on in our lives. There's trouble. I mean, why why would God be with us? See, I I think that 
unbeknownst to us that we buy into the fact that if God was with us, really with us, everything would be perfect. And, and, and it, it, it's interesting to me uh, over the years, I've, I've talked to people that have gone that are like work normal jobs and, uh, you know, grow up in different kinds or live in various kinds of contexts and they, they never feel really close to God and all of a sudden they'll go like on a missions trip. And they're, while they're there, when they come back, they have these experiences. When they come back, they'll always say things like, oh my gosh, God was so present. I was so surprised. It was like everywhere, I, every day we were doing something, I felt like God was leading me and God was so present. It isn't so much that God is present on the mission field and not when you're here. It's that we think that's important and that God would be present. And so we seek him because surely he'd be present in this and we find him. But what if God is as present in your boring everyday job and everyday life as he is on a mission trip? What if God is as real uh, in, in, in your relationships and friendships and circumstances as he is when you come to the altar or when you enter into worship? What if God is present in all those spaces? If he is, then that would imply that you could dare to seek him. Because if you believe that he's actually with you, that you you actually begin to seek him or knock at his door or ask to him, all of a sudden, you will enter into that kind of rhythm of faith. You remember the words of Jesus, ask in Matthew 7 and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, whoever seeks, the Greek actually says, and keeps on seeking will find. And to him who knocks and keeps on knocking, the door will be opened. See, faith acknowledges that like with Jacob, God is with us, but we do not know it. We're not aware of it. And the question is for us is, will we dare to believe that, that he's with us? Especially this is difficult when we're in the midst of hard times, where we think in our minds, if God was really with us, this kind of trouble wouldn't be happening. I mean, how in the world can God be with you if you lose a marriage? or you lose a friendship, or you lose a job, or you lose your health. I mean, how can that be possible? And yet the scripture screams over and over texts like this. This is Psalm 46 and 1. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help where? In trouble. We think, see, this is so counterintuitive because we think if God's our refuge and strength, then we wouldn't be in trouble. But it's saying here, actually, he's our refuge and our strength, and he's ever-present in trouble. In other words, when trouble comes, you'd be thinking, well, here's trouble. God, you're around here. You have to be present because you're present in trouble. It's just, it's just, it doesn't mean God's causing the trouble. It just means he's there to help you in it. Right? Or, or the, the psalm, famous psalm that says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And then it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? Thou art with me. Well, it, it just seems so odd. If it seems like if he's really with me, I wouldn't be anywhere near that valley of the shadow of death. Right? That's how we think. And, and what ends up happening, this is kind of through the whole history of humankind. When people have trouble, the automatic response in our minds is the gods or God is mad at us. And, and we, 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 certainly the only time God is really with a person is when everything's going right. Remember Job and his friends? His friends show up and look at his situation. He's lost everything. And they look at him and they say, Job, dude, you've like 
sin bad for all this to have happened. And they said, you know, God has forsaken you. And that wasn't the truth, but that's exactly what you, we tend to believe about things. If things don't go well, God must not be with us. This is one of the primary reasons that the, the first generation of Israelites that died in the wilderness died in the wilderness because they judged God by what they were experiencing. And they thought because they got thirsty that somehow God was not really with them. Let's read the text here. It says Exodus 17, the story of this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped near Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And so they quarreled with Moses. And they said, give us water to drink. Moses said, why are you quarreling with me? Why are you putting the Lord to the test? Interesting that we put God to the test if we think that what's happening with us is evidence of whether he's with us or not. But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I going to do with these people? They're almost ready to kill me here, stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will stand there before you at the rock of Horeb, strike the rock, water's gonna come out of it for the people to drink, a miracle happens. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. So you think, man, this has gotta be a day of rejoicing. God just did a miracle, but watch what happens. And he called that place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled And because they tested the Lord, how did they test the Lord? They said, is the Lord among us or not? See, do you do that? Do you see when you get a little thirsty or a little hungry, a little lonely, a little feeling like your things aren't going well, disappointed, you know, setbacks, a loss of health? Do you in your mind when that kind of stuff happens... Do you think to yourself, well, is the Lord with me or not? Understand that biblically, the arc of that kind of question is at the very place of displeasing God. He doesn't ever want us to think he's not with us because something is going awry or because some kind of loss or lack is apparent. See, I'm not suggesting he causes lack or causes trouble, not at all. What I am saying is that I think he's there to protect you from the full brunt of evil, And I think that he's always trying to redeem the bad that comes. But we should never question whether he's with us because of circumstances or feelings, right? Um, We're in a world that has pain, but we're also in a world where pain is redeemed. (laughs) Even the ugliest things can be redeemed by God and are redeemed by God if we trust him. But he's looking for our trust. That's why the text in Romans 8 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. It isn't that God makes everything happen. That's not true. That God, everything that happens is God's will. That, that's, it, it's inconsistent. But, and I know there are people that say that, but the, the story of the arc of the church of, of hit, uh, uh, Christian theology does not accept that. There are some groups that do. But he says, we know that in all things, God works. Not that God's making everything happen, but no matter what's happening, God is at work for the good of people who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What this is saying is, whether it's good or it's evil that's present in your life, that God is there with you, 
working for your good, which means angels are going up and down some ladders around you with your interests in mind. And, and you and I just may not know it, just like Jacob's situation. That brings us to the gospel text for today, where Jesus is talking about this business with wheat and uh, tares or weeds growing together. And they're so concerned because how can both be present, right? We sometimes look at our lives and we think, well, how can there be good things and bad things, right? And so we read the text. He, he put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among this wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared as well. See, Jesus' point in this whole parable about the kingdom of God is that our lives are filled with good and bad. It's part of the human experience. Uh, in, in, the, in the words of second century um, uh, church father Irenaeus was that he called this a soul-forming world precisely because it has some good and some bad that tears at us. And as we learn to trust, faith says, God is with me in this, whether it's good or whether it's bad. We, we may not be acutely aware at any given moment that he's with us, but we dare to acknowledge that he is. And we dare to seek and to ask and to knock. And the good news is, if we, if we will do that, he will be found. He will reward those who diligently seek him. And the reward that's best of anything is his very presence and his very sense of confidence that we're going to be okay irrespective of what happens. This is uh, the beautiful news of Jeremiah 29. These guys are in bondage. And, uh, and Jeremiah says to them, you will seek me, speaking for God, you will speak me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I love this, I will be found by you. <laughs> God's basically saying, look, I'm hiding, I've worked that deal out, and, but if you seek me with your heart, with all your heart, I've rigged it so that as you seek me, I'll be found by you. I will be found by you. I, I can't help but go back to the times when I used to play hide and seek with my kids. I would always hide appropriate to their age. Right? So when they were real, real little, I would hide behind things that was easy, you know, it was easy for them to find me. Uh, but as they got older, I hid better, right? Uh, but, but, but the game, I rigged the game. They knew ultimately they would find me, even if it was really hard. And they said, I want to quit playing, Dad, where are you, Dad? You know, they keep calling until I showed up because I will be found by them. See, God, as you get older in faith and go through tests in your life, God will sometimes seem like he is totally gone. Saints on record over the years have talked about things like the dark night of the soul. That's St. John of the Cross. And what he was basically saying was that he said, there are times when your soul has no sense that God's even present, that he's doing anything in your life. But he said, I love that. It's like the winter. It's nothing's evident. Everything looks dead. But winter is the time when the roots go deeper. And it's when the roots go deeper that precipitates a real spring. So he said, I love the dark night of the soul because I know it's precipitating some work of God in my life. So the idea of, of embracing this aspect of faith and saying, you know what? I don't care what isn't happening. I don't care what I'm not feeling. I don't care what has taken place. I'm choosing to trust him. That kind of faith is rewarded. And I, I think that what that looks like is it just looks like you acknowledging him, you know, 
in the course of a day. Seeking God looks like you're driving along and there's no one in your seat. You should drive along and just very casually say things like, I know you're here. I mean, it isn't eluding me that you're hiding. And you're doing a pretty good job because I don't feel you at all. In fact, if I go by my feelings, I don't believe in God. But I know you're here. And I acknowledge you. And I love you. I dare you to talk to God like that. And, and at some point, if you just have that kind of even casual dialogue, God is going to pop out at you like it's like... I mean, you just keep going. I know you're here. I don't feel you. But somewhere like a pop, you go, whoa, yeah, sweet. Or, or, or praying, I, I love praying like the Book of Common Prayer. It's, you may not like that stuff, but it, I love these ordered prayers because pr- these organized prayers are deeply theological because they get me praying about more than just myself. And if I just pray spontaneously, I run out of things to say after two minutes. But, but some of these prayers are so richly theological, and I love to pray into them. And even though I don't always have amazing feelings about it, I feel like I'm leaning into just grasping and asking and knocking and seeking. You also seek him by living a thankful heart, being thankful about all the stuff that you have. And there's so much to be thankful for. I mean, the scripture says that the reason that you're sitting here right now is because he's holding you in life. God is literally holding you in life. If he lets go, you're leaving us. So the very fact that you're breathing, you should go, thank you. I'm breathing. (laughs) Every day, my pattern is I get up in the morning and I turn on the coffee, which I prepared the night before, and I get out a piece of bread, and it's gluten-free. I put it in. I don't have a gluten intolerance. I just like the way that stuff tastes. But anyway, I put, I put in the gluten, bread, click it down, toast it, get it out, put a little peanut butter on it, and then take a little piece of, like a quarter piece of a banana and cut it up real thin slices and put it on the banana. So I got, it, I got the bread, I got the peanut butter, I got the banana, I got the coffee. Oh, mm, mm. thankful heart. And, and I'll look at it, I kid you not, I'll look at it and I'll just go in my mind. There's a lot of people involved in this right now. I mean, think about the bread. Some farmers dug up the ground, sowed the wheat, or not wheat, if it's gluten-free, what is it? Whatever it is. <laughs> Gluten-free is the, the boom. It's, a, it's mystery. <laughs> Sacramental. And, and, and somebody baked it, gathered it, ground it up, baked it, and then somebody had to put it in, you know, cut it up and put it in bags and get it to the grocery store. Chucks got involved. You got the truckers. You got the people in the, pe- the stackers that put them in, the stockers that put them in the, uh, the place and the, the people that built the store. I mean, I've got all these people involved and the bread's there. And then I got the peanut butter. And that, so there's, I mean, who knows how many generations of peanut people <laughs> are involved with this peanut butter, right? So I got the peanuts were grown and they were taken off of the thing and then they're ground up and then somebody's add some salt and stuff that they did that and they do it and, and the magic of Jif. What? Jif is the junk. That's, that's positive right there. I love the Jif. So, so whoever did the peanut butter and we got it in the jars and they got it to the stores and the trucks and the, all those people on the shelves and all that. And I get, I got, I got the peanut butter and, the, and then the banana people. Somebody... Banana farms and pulling the bananas off the thing and getting them overseas and wherever, because they don't grow in New York or Tulsa, right? And they got to get them there. Think of all of those people. And then the coffee people. You know, Jehovah Java. 
the Lord that awakeneth thee. Right? So I got the, the I got the Java, I've got the peanut butter, jelly, banana, or peanut butter, no jelly, peanut butter, bread, banana thing going on, and I'm sitting there thinking, thank you. I mean, there's been an army involved with this this morning, and they did it for me. So I'm thankful. So then I give thanks for everything. I just, whatever you can do, all through your day, you can give thanks. And then every week when we come together, we come to this table. Remember what it's called? It's called Eucharist. What does Eucharist mean? It's the great thanksgiving. Because in this bread is the life of the world. And bread represents the life of the world. And in the cup is the joy of the human life. And we don't bring God like they used to bring to the gods in pagan contexts, grain and grapes. We bring God what's come from creation and then how we have added to it through human technology and our involvement in our work. So what we bring to God is what's come from creation through the work of human hands along with our very lives to give him See, these are the ways that we acknowledge him. And here's the good news. If you keep pressing to acknowledge him in all these various ways, he will come out of hiding. Not consistently all the time, but sometimes. And sometimes it's cool. Let me close with this text. Hosea 6, let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on because sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's opaque. Sometimes it seems stupid, but let's press on to just simply acknowledge him. Why? Because as surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us, just like the winter rains come, just like the spring rains that water the earth. God is.